The scripture from today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carol. Good morning. Yeah. My name is Ryan Geekus. For those of you who don't know me, um, I serve as one of the members of the staff here in Frontline Edmond, and uh, I have the pleasure this morning of um, continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, If you haven't been here in a while or you're new and visiting with us, I want to give us a little bit of some context and background for where we're picking up in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And so it's helpful for us to remember this morning um, that Paul is still addressing um, the divisions in the church in Corinth due to um, spiritual immaturity that exists among the members. And so um, last week we saw Paul address the Corinthians as infants in the faith who still need milk instead of solid food. And David reminded us that babies are cute, but adult babies aren't cute. And uh, there was relational strife in the church, fueled by jealousy as they walked in the flesh. They were identifying with leaders among them, saying, well, I'm, I'm with Paul. I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. And so their pride and their arrogance and their um, cliques and their, their obsession with this cult of personality amongst the leaders in the church was causing division. And so if you're a Christian this morning... Um, I want to remind us of a few things as we talk about spiritual maturity. 
Our present reality is that if we are in Christ, we are being sanctified in Jesus, meaning we're progressively growing. We're progressively being conformed into the image of Christ. We're maturing in Jesus. It's a lifelong journey. And so this is happening over time as we live in obedience to God and his wisdom. But there's also another reality, and that is our struggle with sin is not over. Alistair Begg says it like this. He says, sin no longer reigns, but it remains. And because of this, if we don't live out a life of repentance and obedience and continuing to come before God's throne of grace in in obedience to his word, um, our spiritual growth, our, our maturity in him can be stunted. And in turn, we would need to be fed spiritual milk. And that spiritual milk is the gospel itself. It's what we came, what brought us to faith in Jesus in the first place. And when we talk about spiritual meat, we're not talking about something that is beyond the gospel. We're talking about the same thing, the gospel, but we're growing in depth of our understanding, the depth of our comprehension of what it is that God has done for us through Christ and Jesus and what the implications of that are in our life. And so there's a soberness that we should live in with as Christians, and that is that sin is a very present reality in and around us. If we live as if there's not a battle with our flesh, with the world, and with the enemy, then we're living a foolish life that carries great risk and honestly inevitability of blowing up and doing great damage. Before we pray, I want to remind us of some words in the book of Galatians, um, chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so there's something very simple for us to take away from this, and that's if you do live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you don't live according to the Spirit, you will satisfy the desires of the flesh, and spiritual growth will be slowed. It'll be stunted. And so in verse 5, where we'll pick up today, Paul begins to address the immaturity of the church in Corinth and exposes the folly of their pride by bringing himself and Apollos off of the pedestal that they've put them on. Before we jump in, let's pray together. If you will, pray for me. I'll pray for you as we dive in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. What a gift it is to have this book in front of us. Ordained and inspired by the Spirit of God. And we ask, Lord, that that same Spirit would be active today um, in us and among us. That you would open up your word to us. That we would behold beautiful things and good things in your word. That we'd be edified and built up and encouraged in you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love uh, agricultural metaphors. If, if I've ever, yeah, thanks. Um, if you've heard me preach, I will try to sneak it in, even if it's not obvious. Um, maybe that's maybe it's something I need to work on. I need more life experience. Um, but today um, is really a special treat for me. Uh, it has been given to me, um, and so. Uh, but I got my first experience in gardening at Texas A and M. University in College Station, Texas. Did I hear somebody woo? 
I did. Oh, yeah, there you are. I see. Uh, <laughs> where I worked for several years in my early 20s. Um, I was working there when I met my wife, Catherine. She actually attended the university. I worked at the university. It's a miracle uh, that we ended up together. I was one of the guys walking around in uniform. She was a sorority girl, and uh, the Lord filled the chasm <laughs> between us. And here we stand today. But when I started there, I had no qualifications um, for, for the job. I'd never grown anything in my life, um, except things you don't want to grow, probably. And, the, uh, and, and so I got the job. I don't even know what I'm talking about when I said that. I'm sorry for whatever you, that's wherever that took you. But there was a, there was a guy, there was a guy there, his name was John Duncan. And John was my direct supervisor, and um, he, he latched onto me really quick. And, um, man, he was an incredible gift to me. And over the years, um, I, I think back on him with great fondness, and I wish I could find him. I've tried to find him on all the socials, but I can't. But um, early on, he just latched onto me. I don't know if he saw potential or what, but I would be out um, working, doing my job in, in my um, area, and he would swing by and he'd pick me up in his truck. And we would drive around campus and he would just teach me things. He, he was a master gardener and he would point to trees and he'd be like, what kind of tree is that? And I'd be, well, that John is an evergreen. <laughs> he'd be like, well, yes, but what kind of evergreen, Ryan? <laughs> and he would teach me those things and we would stop at certain places around campus and he'd teach me how to prune um, certain shrubs or, or trees and teach me how to um, prune crepe myrtles instead of doing crepe murder. Have you heard of that? <laughs> you just chop off the top. There's a correct way to do it. Um, but he would teach me all these things and he was my advocate. He helped me um, get promotions. I had really cool jobs there where I was able to be personal gardener for the president and the vice president of the university and later the chancellor and George Bush Presidential Library where we won awards and um, it was an incredible gift and honor, and something has stuck in me all those years. I, um, at some point uh, later, uh, about several, probably five years into working there, um, I actually got an award. <laughs> Employee of the Year. Hey. 2002, in recognition for outstanding contributions to Landscape Maintenance West. And uh, it meant a lot to me. I, I had actually won two. I won it for the entire, our entire department, and I won it for um, Landscape Maintenance West. And, um, you know, I remember that. I was no longer working for John Duncan at that time and hadn't for a couple years. But wherever I was at, he would always swing by and, and check in on me. And I remember seeing him even that day. He didn't even work in that, my, my department. But I remember seeing him back there and, He'd come up, he'd shake my hand and say, good job, man. I knew you could, you know, I knew you'd do well here. And all of a sudden, then he'd run off. Um, but he, he discipled me in the way of gardening. He, he served me. Um, he didn't seek any credit himself, but he, he worked on my behalf. I think one of the things that has continued to capture my heart about gardening is that there's something incomprehensible about farming 
You can do all the right things. You can plant the seeds at the right time, in the right soil, under the right conditions, and you're still totally dependent on things outside of your control. The weather can make or break your crop for an entire year, especially here in Oklahoma, where this place is always trying to kill us. <laughs> the heat, ice falling out of the sky, stickers. But even if it's a total success, so much of the process happens while you aren't watching, where you're not even working on it. It happens in the soil, <laughs> where, it's invisible, where invisible work is happening. And in the same way, the kingdom of God is incomprehensible to us. We do the work we've been given to do, but we don't always get to see it taking shape or coming into being. So any seasoned farmer knows the extreme vulnerability of waiting after putting seed into the ground and watering it. They will tell you that every crop that produces fruit is a miracle. I'm always struck by the humility of seasoned farmers who have experienced the loss of crops due to things completely outside of their control. And they're resolved to go and to plant again. Why do they do that? Because it just might grow this time. But unseasoned farmers like myself, or what I like to call Instagram farmers, <laughs> are a bit different. We're much less resilient. Growing in our resiliency, maybe. But we're very quick to take credit for even a single tomato plant. We'll take pictures of it as we plant it in the ground. And as it starts to sprout, we'll take a picture of that. And when the first tomato blooms, we'll take a picture of that and Post it with some music behind it. And, so, and then later when it's on our, ta- on, our, on our plate with olive oil and mozzarella and looks beautiful, say, <laughs> look at what we've done. Why is that? It's because we think we did something. And the reality is we did. We, we actually planted a seed. We watered it and we saw it grow. We, we take delight in, in the labor. But it's because we think we did something when the real miracle of what we were part of happened underneath the soil where we have no control at all. We can plant and water, but something totally outside of us actually causes a seed to grow. It's a mystery. In his book, Food and Faith, The Theology of Eating, author Norman Wurzba, it's a wonderful book, he says, to garden is to unseat oneself as the center of primary importance and to instead turn one's life into various forms of service that will strengthen and maintain the many memberships that make up the garden. It is to give up the much trumpeted goal of modern and postmodern life, individual autonomy, and instead live the life of care and responsible interdependence. This is what the biblical command to till and keep the garden means. And so this is where we pick up in Paul's letter to the Corinthians Paul uses the agricultural metaphor to address the issue in Corinth. And so you see, they were esteeming Paul and Apollos and other church leaders as more than the leaders would even esteem themselves or take credit for or claim for themselves. They were caught up in the cult of personality and creating division in the church over it. So let's start by looking at verses 5 through 7. It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I find it curious that Paul doesn't say, who is Apollos or who is Paul? But rather he says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? His answer, we're merely servants and field workers to whom tasks are assigned by God. He's saying, who am I? I'm no one. You boast in me? I'm a mere servant. It was though Paul and Apollos, it was through Paul and Apollos that the Corinthians came to faith in Jesus and belief in the gospel in the first place. But the folly of the Corinthians was that they began to esteem them as more than what they are, servants. Paul is speaking of himself as a servant who was assigned a specific task by the Lord according to his gifting, according to his calling, according to his unique design. And it could not have been fully realized without the unique design, gift, and calling of Apollos, who is watering the foundation that he had already built. And more crucial to all of this, Paul is taking all of that and saying, but it is God who actually gives the growth. The fruit that you see, that you're experiencing in the church, is actually because of God. Paul and Apollos were servants of salvation. They were not the source of salvation. And the reason they were doing what they were doing is because God assigned it to them. God gave them a task. It is God's work, and it is God's growth, and it is God who gives the reward. And so it's important to note that Paul finds it necessary to address this issue amongst the Corinthians. And I think for us, it's important too, because I believe um, that it is important for us today. And why is that? He's exposing their tendency to look to church leaders or church laborers among them as more than they really are, servants. And in this metaphor, specifically as farm workers. So he's disarming the cult of personality that has taken root there. The Corinthians were identifying with them more than they identified with Jesus and the gospel. And in other words, they were preoccupied with Christian celebrity more than Christ himself. It was the fruit and evidence of spiritual immaturity. And if we're honest, we see it rampant throughout Christianity in the West today. We love soundbite sermons from celebrity pastors with large churches. But Jesus had a different vision for leadership, and he modeled a different vision of that leadership himself. Look with me at Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. Disciples are sitting with Jesus. And Jesus says this, or he's not talking yet, I'll get to that. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, now it's Jesus, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The reality is pastors and church leaders aren't um, esteemed like they once were in our current culture. And that's okay. The news cycle loves to see the next pastor with a big church fail. And honestly, it's heartbreaking and maddening to see leaders with influence be exposed for their spiritual immaturity and, in some cases, abusive behavior. 
But there are also there are also many more pastors who are working as mere servants, who have been given a task from God to plant and to water seeds. Friends like ours who we prayed for this morning, the Kimberleys in rural Iowa. Nobody sees them. They're not celebrities. And they're planting and they're watering seeds, trusting God to give the growth. 1 Corinthians 3.7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And in verse 8, Paul says that we are God's fellow workers. There's an invitation from God for us to co-labor with him together for the sake of the gospel. We're called to God's mission of planting and watering seeds with one another in the unfolding redemption of the world. And God gives the growth. Through hospitality to our neighbors, God gives the growth. Through being the faithful presence of Jesus to your coworker who doesn't know Jesus, God gives the growth. Through praying with your friend who has experienced deep heartache and has no one else to turn to, God gives the growth. Through inviting your friends to a meal with your community group, God gives the growth. We plant and we water, we plant and we water, we plant and we water as the members of the family of God, each according to their task, each according to the gift that was given to them, and God gives the growth. The beautiful thing about this is that we can labor with joy. We can labor with confidence. We can sleep well at night knowing that God is constantly at work both in us and in the lives of the people around us. The beautiful thing about God's sovereignty in this is that we are assured that our labor is not in vain. That something can actually come from it. And he ensures that. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 127, verses 1 through 2. It says, It is in vain that you rise up early and you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. And so besides being farm workers and servants, in this agricultural metaphor, Paul also emphasizes that they are on the same team with the same goal. He was speaking to the competition that was beginning to take place in the church that was causing division. But they weren't in competition with one another. They each have specific tasks on God's farm. And God's farm is us, the church. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that it is foolish to rank God's servants according to what role God has given them or to be more committed to one over against the other. All who work according to the task given them by God are unified in purpose and in mission. And that mission is the salvation of many and the building up of the body of Christ. And scripture tells us that each will be rewarded according to his own labor. In addition to being a gardener once in my life, um, I also worked for a company who recruited nurses. And so I was a recruiter. And uh, if I ever cold called you while you were trying to work, I'm sorry. Um, it was a miserable job for me. Some people are really gifted in this area. And I actually did well. But um, for a guy who liked working with his hands and doing gardening work, now sitting in a cubicle, making phone calls, I had goals that were set for me. We had a large board up on the wall 
rightly so, and it was a culture of competition. My name was up there along with everybody else. How many nurses who were working for me at that moment, how many I had in the pipeline, how many that I was, my goal for that week was to close, um, how much money I was there, all the numbers um, that were associated, associated with, with that. And it was a ranking system. If you did well, then you would get promotion. Um, if you didn't do well, you probably wouldn't get a promotion. And that's the way the world works. And we understand that. But in the kingdom of God, it's not about who can produce the most or who gets the most results. God alone produces the growth. You can't control the outcome. God does. So who could ever boast? Who could ever be prideful about something that they could not produce even if they wanted to? The fruit of salvation. And so the only right response is one like the hymn that we sing so often, and it says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, that his wounds have paid my ransom. We should be the most humble people on the planet. Everything we have was given to us. Everything that we could ever give to someone else was first given to us in Jesus. And so are we faithfully living in obedience to God and according to his unique design and task for us? Are we being good stewards of what God has given us? Paul's words to the Corinthians are about him being faithful with what God has assigned to him. And he is now pointing to God, not himself, as the source of their growth. So let's look now at verses 9 through 17. And I want to read through this again because we're going to walk through these verses. But I want, to, I want us to hear them in context. Starting in verse 9, it says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building." According to the grace of God given to me. So now he's made a shift from agriculture to architecture. So we get to abandon that. So that's all right. <laughs> According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, sound great, wood, hay, straw, maybe not, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, you are that temple. In verse 9, Paul makes a hard turn from agriculture to architecture. He says, you are God's field, God's building. And we all know that a building of any value has two things, at least two things, a foundation, and a structure built on that foundation. We've all heard 
the analogies of all those, this foundation has to be secure. And in his relation to the church in Corinth, Paul likens himself to a master builder who has laid the secure foundation of himself. No, he's laid the secure foundation of the gospel, of Jesus, a task given to him by God for the stable building of the church in Corinth. But as we've already seen, there are many in Corinth who were naming Paul and Apollos as the foundation instead of Jesus. And Paul is making a point that the leaders of the church are not the foundation, but Christ alone is. Verse 11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now that the foundation is established, now that we've gotten that out of the way, the task of building is now in the hands of church leaders and the members of the church itself, us. Which, by the way, is still us today. Paul has laid the foundation of the gospel for the church, and now he says, someone else is building upon it. He says, let each one take care how he builds it. And then he goes on to say, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. And so what Paul is warning against is a false, false gospel or anything that would put Jesus anywhere but at the center of the church's ambition. He then talks to us about the materials that are being used to build this metaphorical building, the reality of the church. Verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss, though he'll still be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, well, that's a little more intense. <laughs> that's a little more intense. What is Paul saying? Gold, silver, and precious stones. These were all used in the construction of Solomon's temple and serve as a prophetic picture of what will survive judgment on the day. The day when we stand before God. So in contrast, materials like wood, hay, and straw will not survive. And so this is what he's saying. The labor that we do in obedience to God through faith in Jesus, who is the foundation, will survive and be rewarded. Remember what we read in Galatians earlier about walking in the spirit or the desires of the flesh. Here's where it applies. Work done in the power of the flesh or in disobedience to God and his word will not survive. And so it's important to remember, too, that Paul is talking to Christians. These are people who have genuinely put their faith in Jesus. They just have some growing up to do, a lot like me. He's not saying that they won't survive, but he is saying that their work may not survive. Their salvation is secure in Jesus if you are in Christ Jesus today, your salvation is secure in him. If you've put your faith in him, your salvation is secure. Jesus is enough. But scripture is clear that although we won't face condemnation on that day, our works will still be judged and we will be rewarded accordingly. And you can see that in places. We're not going to go there today, but Matthew 6, verse 3. You can see it in Matthew 10, verses 41 through 42. And so you, you may be thinking, Ryan, that does not sound right. 
That does not sound right. There will be people in heaven with more reward than me? Or I may have more reward than someone else? Upon first hearing this, I tend to myself imagine, imagine myself in the new heavens, new earth, all content. And I look up from my flourishing garden <laughs> and see my friend in the distance who's faithfully served the poor all their life, who wasn't esteemed among men, and they have an even larger garden with giant squash and tomatoes. And I'm overcome with jealousy and envy. Well, that sure doesn't sound like heaven. And that's because it's not. Think about this. There will be a day when sin no longer reigns and it no longer remains. And I won't be overcome with jealousy, but I will be overcome with delight at the realization of my friend's reward. It will actually cause me to experience even more of the eternal delight that will never be exhausted in a million years that we all will share in the presence of God. Friends, jealousy, division, strife, will no longer have a place in our future. And so we aren't propelled towards good, faithful, obedient work out of competition, but out of joy and out of delight that is found in being a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. Finally, let's look at verses 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? What incredibly good news. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So this isn't talking about tattoos. Like I was taught growing up. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> but listen, God loves his church a lot. He loves you a whole lot. And he will stop at nothing to protect the church, his church, the bride of Christ, the son's reward. I love my wife. And if you're an enemy, enemy of my wife, then you're an enemy of me. I will protect my wife. How much more will our heavenly father preserve and protect his church if someone is an enemy of his church, you're an enemy of God. And for those who delight in the church's demise, it should serve as a strong warning. If you're a Christian, I want you to be reminded of this in your weakness, in your brokenness, and even your immaturity. You are progressively being conformed into the image of Christ. It's, a, it's his work. It's a work that only he can do. You are a new creation, and your salvation is secure 
in Jesus. There's nothing that can change that. If you're not a Christian, hear this. God loves you. He loves you. And he is extending to you his free gift of grace secured for you through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll read Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Be reminded of this. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so how can we consider Paul's charge to the Corinthians and, and to us towards unity in the church and spiritual maturity among us? We are all, we are all given specific tasks from God according to our unique design to be done in unity with God's people, for God's people, and for God's glory. And all of our labor built upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And so how do we do this? And I want to charge you in light of Paul's charge to us. In Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, for Paul's letter to the Corinthians and for your words to us today. I pray, God, that your word would be planted in fertile soil in our hearts, that it would bear fruit. Um, Lord, that as we, as we abide in you, um, that we would see the spiritual fruit of our sanctification, of our growth and our maturity in you. And Lord, we trust in the work that you're doing in us and among us and around us, the work that you alone can do, would you help us and empower us to do the things that you've called us to? The unique tasks that you've assigned to each of us, that we would be faithful stewards of your farm, of your church, of your mission. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.